Welcome to series two of our weekly podcast, Womankind Collective, with me, Lou Hawkins-Thompson, and me, Jinty Sheeran. We will talk all things woman, so get the kettle on and settle in for a chat and probably a lot of laughter along the way. It's good to be back and we have a very special guest for you this week. Uh, We chat to the amazing author and historian Fern Riddell about her new book, Sex Lessons from History. We discuss gender, sex, suffrage and much, much more. We finish our book from series one, Marvellous Ways, so I hope you've all been busy over the holidays finishing that one. And we begin our new book collective with obviously, Fern Riddell's brilliant sex lessons from history. We hit the ground running with our new foodie theme this month, love food. Mm -hmm. Mm. And we continue with our love theme for a WI from me to you, Lou. (laughs) You will love it. And we've had some lovely comments after we finished series one, didn't we, Lou? Oh, we did. We had Emma, the amazing menopause nutritionist. She said, I love your podcast. Well done for the energy and enthusiasm you've put in this first series. Oh, thank you, Emma. It's it's great to have her support, isn't it? And Eleanor, lovely Eleanor, says, What an amazeballs 20 episodes. Only discovered you lovelies on episode 10 and enjoyed every minute. Look forward to series two. And here we are already, Lou. Here we are on series two. Um, Fiona at the Harley Street Emporium on Instagram says somebody needs to make a comfortable bra for the underboob area. Yes, mm-hmm. they do. Yes, I had a chat with my mum, my 89-year-old mum, about the underboob area earlier, oh. but we can talk about that at another point. Um, and Lisa says, well done. Jin- oh, no, she doesn't. She doesn't say well done. She says, well, <laughs> Jinty and Lou, what a fantastic, informative, funny and uplifting first series. We didn't pay her, did we, Lou? No, we did not. Now she says well done. She does. <laughs> yeah. She got well, there. She got there in the end. Well done. I can't wait for the for the next. Oh, thank you, Lise. That's brilliant. So how's your break been, Lou? Well, I've been life-changing on my break, <laughs> actually, Jens. So... I decided during lockdown to, well, you know this, but the listeners may not have, no. um, I gave up my job. I wow. gave up, I'm, I'm a, anyone that knows me, I'm an assessor for hairdressing and an IQA, have been for 20 years, and I've gone back into a salon three days a week because I'm loving making women feel good about themselves. Fantastic. So for me, it's a life change, and I can spend time doing this and three days in the salon with my lovely clients. making lots of women's I mean hairdressing is such an important job so important people can come in feeling like shit yeah and just with a chat and a new hairdo yeah and yeah and I've met some amazing amazing women so it's been really good for you yeah it's been really good so yes a whole life change life changing in three weeks I know who knew fantastic yeah and so gents how about you well Yes, I've had mixed a mixed three weeks. Um, so we went back to the theatre, which was fantastic oh, after super. lockdown. Uh, we saw Hairspray, and it was absolutely the the actual show. I, any, anyone wants to go, go because they've got two standing ovations. They were absolutely brilliant. But to be back in the theatre, yeah. you know, I'm going next weekend. Oh, I yes. can't wait. What are you seeing again? Six. Fantastic. About there. Wives, isn't it? Uh, Six Wives of Henry VIII. Yeah, I can't wait. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, so I'll interesting that. that. Is that a musical? It is. Oh, mm. how exciting! Um, and um, 
I've got a little a little sort of query about um this has been happening over the last sort of few weeks cutlery drawers okay, okay. yes go on a little, little bit of a feminist battle going on with my husband at the moment take the cutlery out of the dishwasher mm -hmm. put the cutlery away in the drawer now he puts the knives and forks and the spoons facing the right I always put them facing the left because you're right-handed so you right. go in the drawer yes. right-handed I see he's right-handed as well but so the, the battle isn't kind Sounds of... Like he's cock-handed. He does. Yeah, maybe, maybe he is. <laughs> so the battle really is, it's really a battle of wills I'm finding okay. here. Is it a feminist battle? This is what I want to know. Am I just being silly or stubborn? Or am I thinking, why should I just obey, you know, obey his knives and forks and spoons one way when I want them the other way? Or am I just, doesn't it really matter? I don't think it really matters, but you see that I would make it a point. Yeah. That's a sharp I'm, point. A sharp point. That is kind of what I'm doing. So I'm putting them back the same way. Yeah. But some battles, do you know what? Are they worth fighting? Mm. Well, that's the thing. I'm seeing it as a bit of a sexist battle at the moment. So, so we'd love your views on that. And have you got any feminist sort of battles going on at home? Um, the other thing, which I will try not to get emotional, so it might sound a bit like I'm being a bit blasé, which I'm not. But if I talk about it for too long, I will cry. But as you know, we're very honest here at Womankind Collective. So um, just after we recorded our last podcast, um, my dad died. So again, I can't say more, much more than that because I shall cry. But um, we're going to do a podcast on grief, aren't we, at some point. We are. We are. Um, I haven't had his funeral yet. That's going to be um, in about two weeks' time. Um, and one thing I will just say is grief is absolutely exhausting, unexpectedly so. Hmm. you know all the other stuff what's gonna kind of happen although you can never prepare yourself for it even though he was 94 um it was very sudden but it's just exhausting Lou. Yeah. absolutely exhausting so yes so there we are and we're gonna do like you say we're gonna do a podcast all about grief and i'll we are we'll, and, we'll I, and i think that'll be, be really good and i'm sure there's so many people going or gone through simmer in the last couple of years with everything that's gone on you know in the world yeah. at the moment yeah i think it's i sat in the car the other day when i'd come home from my mum's and you know how there's lots of videos on instagram and things of women in their cars yeah they seem to met and i and i've often thought wonder why people do it in their cars i've seen you do it actually yeah, you've I done have. it on yours yeah. and i was sat there i didn't make a video but i could have and i thought you know it's one of the, we are the sandwich generation aren't we yeah. we're slap bang in the middle looking after parents quite often or losing parents, going through that grief, still trying to have a family at home and yeah. look after them. And do you know what? I was sat in that car and that was my middle bit of the sandwich. Yeah. See, it was like, and I couldn't go in. I thought, I can't. I've seen my mum. My mum was, she's really good. But it's upsetting. It's just horrible yeah. seeing her on her own. So I'd done all that, sat and I had to have a few moments in the car before I then had to pick myself up, pull up, put the big girl pants on, yeah. whatever you say and go in and face the family and yeah. oh let's have some tea and it's it's a hard it is place and I to think be. I think I think and then, do you know what you say interesting do doing it in the car sitting there I think it's such a safe space isn't it I've cried so much more in my car yeah than I think than anywhere else because it's I've been on my own or I've listened to music um it's quite you can get quite emotive in the car it's your safe little metal box really it, isn't it yeah you you're so right yeah. and i've never thought about it like that so i'm going to look at other women's videos in their cars from a very different light now yeah 
because I think it is that little safe space. It's just you. Yeah. Before you kind of come on, right? Pull myself up off to the next yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well done, Jens. So. Okay, let's move on to the foodie collective. So our theme this month is love food. Love. It could even be sex food. Oh, it could. Oh, yes. Um, and we want to know what food gets you in the mood for love. Or puts you off. Oh, absolutely. Mm. So, gents, does any drink or food get you in the mood for love? I don't know why yeah, it's very sexy. Oh, no. oh, that that definitely gets me in the mood. <laughs> um, well, I, I no, but one thing that would is if just the fact that um, John would cook for me that would get me in the mood. Mm. I'd find that very romantic because he never he always makes out he cooks. He doesn't. He doesn't. I don't know where he gets that from. He's made a tomato salad. That's hard, isn't it? With some yeah, tomatoes. There's some tomatoes and a bit of olive oil. Um, he once made me, when I ate meat, so this shows how long ago it was, some lamb chops. <laughs> um, and when, again, this is how long ago it was, when I was very hungover, he once had to make a roast dinner because I couldn't get my head off the pillow and I'd, I'd invited my mum and dad to dinner <laughs> without telling him <laughs> he had to make a roast. Apart from that, he's never cooked. So if he said, Jin, I've got a special dinner I want to cook you tonight, that would definitely get me in the mood Do you know, for I agree. I agree because the only time Steve has cooked a roast dinner, again, when I invited my mum and dad and Steve's mum and dad round, and I went off to extra shopping, and <laughs> he had to roast, make it be a, a roast chicken, and he grilled everything. To the grilled, is he it, had a, it, we had a grilled grill. potatoes <laughs> and grilled a whole what? grilled chicken. What? Did he just turn the oven on wrong? Did he think yeah. it was on? Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> so. That's fun. Yeah. But does that get you in the mood for love, though, even though it was grilled? No, because then I had, there was a lot of clearing up to do after the grilled roast dinner. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. I, I think a nice glass, I do like, you know, I love my champagne. I think a nice glass of chilled champagne. I love fruit. So some strawberries. We had lobster the other night. Yes. Yeah, because so oysters a, are supposed to do it. I suppose it's texture, is it? I is it more know. about I don't texture? I like oysters, but I like no. the lobster. Um, or even just, you know, me, I'm a simple girl, bag of Haribos. Bag of Haribos. I could be anybody's. Just just being treated, I think. I yeah. think it would maybe be different for, for different genders, wouldn't it, as to what you'd kind of... Yeah. I think for me and you, it would just be anything that we don't have to bloody cook ourselves. And clear nice. up after. And clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think when I used to drink, I can understand a nice glass of bubbly. Yeah, could if you're in the right mood, yeah, would yeah. get you in. Yeah, yeah, Just a little bit yeah, of definitely. relaxation. So, so we want to know what gets you in the mood. Is there any food, drink, anything like that? Actually, it doesn't even have to be food. It is a foodie collective. Yeah, but, but it's getting the mood, mood for love. For love. <laughs> and you have to say it like that. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you can have love without sex, and you can have sex without love. But any of those, 100%. any of them, any of those. Any of the aforementioned befores. Yes, exactly. Um, so let us know. We got you can let us know on the womankind collective uh, at gmail.com. That's our email, or you can DM us on our Instagram and we'll try and if you come up with any ideas, we'll try and create them. Yes, I think we've got a love potion coming up Ooh, next week, haven't we? Yes. Okay, so this week or next week? Next week. Next week. 
Yes. And we'll let you know how that goes. Well, well we... actually, I'm not going to maybe let you know how that goes in case my daughter's listening. But we'll <laughs> let you know. We'll, we'll tell you about our love potion. We will. We will. Um, and so WI, Lou, um, anything still going from the last series? No, don't no, ridiculous. No, no food diary, dare I mention? No, no, okay. Um, food? We've got some lessons there to come, haven't we? Yes. Yeah. Well, I've got, so I've got one for you. This, there's nothing, you can write it down. I just don't know what I haven't got any either. gifts. No. Well, when I was doing, I have mentioned it before in the podcast, and it's a brilliant, brilliant free course that you can do um, uh, with, um, now is it Yale or the other one? I can't, I think it's Yale University on um, Future Learn or one of those. Um, I'll find out the details and put it on the uh, show notes. Um, but one of the things we had to do, we had a whole week on, um, a, actually it's called The Science of Happiness, so I didn't mention that. So the course is Science of Happiness and it's absolutely brilliant. You started it, didn't you, Lou? I did. Didn't finish it. That's a food diary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know whether you got as far as the gratitude bit. And you once set me a, a WR, gratitude yes. WI, which which I do did and I still do when I remember. Yeah. Um, but more than your food diary. Anyway, moving on. Uh, one of the things with the gratitude um, that you had to do or try and do um, was write a letter an actual letter, not an email or a text, to somebody that you felt a lot of gratitude for. For it might be someone from your childhood, it might be someone you see every day, it might be someone you haven't seen for years, anybody, anybody at all, somebody that you can really think about that you're grateful to for maybe starting you on a certain path, maybe doing something, you know, family can be anything. Now with that letter, it's quite cathartic anyway. It's quite yeah. nice for you. Um, but what they then wanted you to do was take it to that person by hand. Wow. And hand it to them. Now, you could sit with them while they read it. You could read it to them. Okay. If you preferred and they preferred, you could just leave it with them and let them read in their own time. If you really didn't want to see that person or they live in Australia, yeah. so it's a long way to go for a WI yeah. in a week, um, then um, you could email it or send a letter. Okay. If you can send a letter. What a lovely one to do. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, so and if anyone else has a go, please, please let yes. us know. Okay, gents. Book collective. <laughs> Book collective. I have finished it. A year of marvelous ways. Yes. Now I've no. This has been a struggle, and I know. Say life hasn't been easy at the moment as well. It's not been the, maybe the time to read, but I believe you finished. I have, and it didn't take me a year to of marvelous ways to finish it. I thought it might at one point. Um, yes, and it. It's. Uh, I. I can't say. You know, it's. It's all been an easy read. But it's, it's been great. I, I think it's a brilliant book if you're on holiday. I find with a busy-ish mind, I can meditate. I can try and meditate, but I find it very difficult because it's very, like you say, poetic, mm. isn't it? It and is. I, I found, but anyway, I finished it. Um, and as you said, um, I was trying to finish it and, you know, my dad just died. Oh gosh, and it's very emotional, isn't it? I know. And I just thought, I, thought, I know, I know. And, and I knew 
you were getting to the end and all this had happened in your life and I was thinking holy fuck but actually it's very beautiful as well isn't it absolutely and it's very serene and it's very calm so I thought actually that was it was it was very it it, it was beautiful in a this is going to sound weird but in a really weird because it's quite a spiritual book in a really weird way it was almost like I was meant to read it when I did yeah I I wasn't meant to finish it before yeah because it involves you know the war is mentioned I know my dad wasn't in the first world war but my my dad was um he was over in um France and Germany in the in the end part of the second world war so there, there was all these kind of little mentions you know here and there and obviously um, you know the the spiritual stuff and the ghosts that she sees yeah. and the dreams that she has, and um, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. I was a little bit of, con- of confusion, but um, you helped sort those. That was with Francis, Francis yes. Drake. Yes. So yeah. Oh, I've just realised he was called Jack Francis. Was he? Fra- no. Who was he called? Jack. He was called Francis Drake. Yeah. And, he and was the- called Jack-, Jack Drake. Jack Francis. Jack Francis. Yeah. Jack Francis. Oh, that I've just, I've just, I've only just put that together, the Francis bit. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Um, so I have got, what have I written down here? I've written down a couple of bits and bobs that were particularly um, meant something to me. Um, Missy, because Missy disappeared, didn't she, years and years yeah, ago? Yeah, she did. Um, and <clears throat> Exactly. Um, and what they all went to the pub. Uh, this one particular night is coming toward the end of the book and Drake was sat there and he said Missy would love this and he surprised himself because he hasn't been able to mention her name name or so he surprised himself and then Marvellous which I cried at this bit obviously because my dad had died at this point and so this this bit um, I'm not going to now I'm going to I'm determined but Marvellous said you move because he was quite shocked at moving on he felt he was moving on Uh, Marvellous said you move on and bring them with you. We leave nothing behind, and they come willingly. I know. And you should always take your ghosts with you. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I know. So now we both, we're both, we're both off. And it, yeah, we are because it kind of makes sense of moving on. You don't ever move on as such. And why would they, you? They, they're with you, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. And I and I just love the end, right at the end, um, where it all just came together. Yes. Yeah, it did. Right on the last couple of yeah. pages. It, it did. It kind of all those bits, that all those questions in my mind, all... I was just a bit impatient with it. Yeah. You're not very good with fiction. Really, I'm not very you? good with fiction. You like uh, facts. Unless it's quite fast moving, which is quite weird, really. I've learned a lot about myself reading this. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Has it been a good teacher? It has been a good teacher. Not like the crochet. Really good teacher. That was a good teacher in a different way. <laughs> But no, I really enjoyed it. And there's just one little bit that she says in it before that um, that I really, really liked because Jack, as you learn through Jack and Jimmy, come into her, her life, don't they? And then you realise the relationship there. Um, but Jack has to keep disappearing and eventually we find out why. And um, this, this kind of paragraph um, was really interesting as a woman, I think. It says, she had grief in her veins and it flowed through, flowed heavy in her heart. Uh, pumped dull and it unbalanced her coming home she realized all she had given up for love that night marvelous went to the church and lit her very first candle she lit one the following night too and the night after that and that was when she decided to light a candle every night because it was her light and no one else's and it was there to remind her what some men can do to women 
she would never let that flame go out again. That's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it? Mm. Yeah, very beautiful book. And we, um, well, I hope everyone else has read it. Yes, well, they kind of know what happens now, no, but they, we, haven't, we haven't given the game away no, as such. No, absolutely not. You might learn something about yourself by reading it. That's all I'm saying. So, Lou, our new book for the collective this month and the next is Sex Lessons from History. Fern Riddell takes us on an illuminating journey to uncover the sexual lives of our ancestors. From flirtation to orgasm and everything in between, she shows us that there were so we were just so preoccupied as we are with sexual identity, masturbation, foreplay, sex and deviance, facing it with the same confusion, joy and accidental hilarity that we do today, interestingly. Yes, and here to tell us more is the author herself who joined Lou and I for an eye-opening conversation and a bit about the book as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Fern Riddell is a cultural historian specialising in sex, suffrage and culture in Victorian and Edwardian eras. She appears regularly on TV and radio and hosts the well-known history podcast, Hashtag Not What You Thought You Knew, where she explores how history has made us and who we are today. Fern was the historical consultant for the BAFTA award-winning BBC drama Ripper Street and has advised on dramas for both the BBC and ITV. As an on-screen expert, she has also appeared in documentaries for the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5 and Sky Arts, all the big ones. <laughs> Welcome, Fern. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on our podcast. It's oh, been lovely. Yeah, really so excited to have you on. So Lou's a bit of a writer and she has the first question I for do, you, don't we, Lou? Do, so what made you want to write this book? And can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Because I mean, well, it's so lovely and rich in, in research. I oh, found that fascinating. That's really kind. I, um, I think I'm very lucky as a historian. We tend to deal with fun stories and amazing little threads from history as part of our daily job. And I... Really, I want, I've wanted to write this book for a very long time because I, I've always found through my research for any of my jobs, through working on River Street, through doing stuff for documentaries for telly, there are these little stories or little threads that you, you want to tell people more about and you never really get the chance to. And I knew when um, the opportunity at Hodder came for me to do a second book that one of the things I'm really passionate about is telling stories about our sexual culture that aren't what people expect because I think we we really struggle today in our sexual culture whether it's where you're looking at things coming um, from pornography or you're looking at how we're suffering an epidemic of street harassment you know there's so many mm. things today that you can find in the past that actually tell a very different story because I think I think people like to blame the culture we have today on it's always been like this or it's just yeah. what the past was like and as a historian you learn very quickly once you start to look at something and you know start pulling on those threads that the past is a very different place especially to do with sex so I knew I wanted to write a big book that really explored our sexual culture and where it comes from and and would surprise and challenge people 
so that's that's really kind of why why I wanted to do it but my writing my writing process <laughs> um yeah I think I think every 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 or any I don't know a single author who knows the answer who sits down and goes well my writing process is this <laughs> and and you just sort of sit there if, if you do meet an author who tries that or says that you tend to look at them as if they've grown five heads because <laughs> how how do you know that I I think my my writing process is probably categorized as um manic hysteria <laughs> that comes with an impending deadline um so I, I think I tend to, actually actually you know what there is actually one there's one thing I've ever seen from an author that actually made sense to me and it was by Agatha Christie and she said that she spends most of her time thinking about the book that she's going to write and she thinks about it a lot and then when she actually comes to write it she takes herself to a very bad hotel she stays there for a month because it's got terrible food. None of the guests are interesting. And all she can do is concentrate on writing. And a month later, the book is done. And that, for me, felt very, very familiar. Because I yeah. spend a lot of time thinking about what I want to say, researching, finding those threads, finding the things that fit together. But I tend to write in quite a short space of time to get it all down and, and get it all out. Yeah. And did you find that lockdown made that process any easier or more difficult to write the book? Well, I didn't actually write it in lockdown. Oh. This book was due to come out last year. It was due to come out in um, in the summer of last year. So it was done and written and in oh. with its editor at the end of 2019. And then I was one of the authors that the kind of orphaned authors in many ways who got delayed by a year, which is a really weird process as a writer mm. because yeah. you you're used to the big machine, you get really geared up, you know the process, you know when things are going to happen and when things are going to come out. And then it doesn't. And it's a bit like someone takes the rug out from under you. Mm. Because 20, 2020 for me should have been lots of touring, lots of book festivals, lots of events, lots of writing things for press, you know, talking to people, doing podcasts, doing, you know, it yeah. would have just been a, a time of, of out promoting and more importantly, talking to people who'd read it about how they felt about it which is yeah. the best part of being together yeah. is that moment where you is not is not so much the event but the time afterwards yeah. where people come and talk to you and you really get to have those kind of discussions about the connections you've made and how it's connected to other people yeah. so to not have that lockdown it, it was you know added on to the, the weirdness and the horror of last year so it's what I had space, instead, it? yeah, it was yeah. a really big space. I had, um, uh, I sort of, I got, I got really sick with COVID last year as well in the first lockdown. Oh. So everything just kind of spiraled and I got my, you know, we didn't, we didn't get on with editing until a couple of months ago and then it all happened very quickly. And then it's now it's here and it's out and it's weird and I haven't even been to see it in the bookshop. So <laughs> it's just, oh, you know, it's just, it's such a weird time, I yeah. think, for authors. And I think for any author who's coming out now, I mean, we, you do appreciate everything so much more. I think that's for a lot of artists yeah. in many ways, performance mm. artists and anything, it, it really does make you appreciate what, what, we've, what we had, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah, definitely. 
Um, and so in the first chapter of Sex Lessons from History, um, the first chapter is called the first, can I say it, I can say it on our podcast, we've seen it before, <laughs> the we first fuck. It's called, it's called the first fuck. And you discuss how our language has changed and where the F word first appeared, which I was really surprised about. Um, but can, can you tell us a little bit more, can you tell us and our listeners a little bit more about that first? Well, I'm I'm really lucky. A good friend of mine is um, is Dr. Kate Wiles, who's an amazing amazing medievalist and um, someone who works a lot with language. So Kate wrote a long time about a long time ago about the origins of the word fuck and where it comes from, which I draw on in the book, and it kind of blew my mind. So the reason why this chapter is called the first fuck is because I really wanted to set up for people that this book is going to take something you think you know a lot about and just blow your mind on on its origins it really did that it really did that and what a name for a first chapter fantastic (laughs) yeah thank you well I think I think so so for me that's kind of that's what it did because I can remember sitting down with Kate because historians we're we're all magpies like we borrow from other people we talk to other people our ideas are formed because of the research of other people's as much as the stuff that we do ourselves so Kate was telling me about where kind of where the word fuck comes from how it wasn't anything to do with sex the amazing kind of heritage of it in our surnames in the medieval period and how it was to do with really with with your work it was an action for hitting and that's kind of set me off on a thread of going okay well if fuck isn't what we were using to talk about sex because I think we all agree you know sexual slang and talking about sex has probably been since we were in caves you know that's that's it's not a new thing so what language were we using before fuck was fuck and that's learning how kind of how Chaucer was using swive and finding that in poetry finding that in kind of everyday speak and the heritage of that and then how fuck kind of emerges out to become the word we understand today that was I really loved those kind of patchworks of um of drawing those 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 kind of dots together through the past to the present and how language changes and also stays so much the same yeah, yeah it's interesting, so interesting it is. Well. and and the word swive I mean that's not used now is it does that still have the same meaning do you know is that you don't want to get swived no. <laughs> <laughs> no really well maybe I well, do I, think, I don't know well, yeah but I think that's that's kind of what I really loved of, is sort of finding how those things fall out of fashion and yeah. how how much the dictionaries kind of give us the opportunity to trace that story and that history. Because, you know, the first dictionaries emerging out of the 15, 1600s not only tell us what sexual song people were using, but also show that our sexual culture was part of everyday speak, whether you were gay, whether you were a sodomite, you know, whether you were talking about fuck or how to have sex or about genitals. People wanted to write those words down so that they could define them and say them to other people. Mm. And I think the thing I really love about the word swive is, especially in Chaucerian language, in that, in that kind of Middle English, it does have a kind of a romance and a, a lyricism to it when you hear someone speak Middle English, kind of how that falls up and down in, in language patterns. It can be really musical and kind of amazing. And then when you get to kind of the the 1700s and early 1800s, as it's starting to fall away and fuck and other sort of sexual slang words come come more into everyday language and, and using that instead, I think we start to kind of, that romanticism and eroticism 
moves far more into kind of vulgar graphicness yeah which is fascinating to see because I think again we're seeing that today yeah. we are we tend to think it's a modern thing don't we that's mm. the one thing that I've loved about the whole book is is what surprised me is how all that is never it's not modern certainly not a modern <laughs> thing at all I'm gonna I'm gonna like you know skip to quite a few um questions on only because while we're talking about language um the slang names for our genitals just while we're while we're there I the Cupid's Cupid's cloister isn't that's it wonderful yeah. isn't it and testicles for whirligigs. I mean, that. <laughs> for whirligigs. That's for washing whirligigs. <laughs> You won't look at it the same They're amazing. I mean, if, if you think of like a little whirligig beetle, it makes sense to me, kind of oh, in shape and pattern and, and everything else. It makes, it's just like, oh yeah, I can see that. But I think this is one of the things I, I really love about the slang of the past is it does have, I think when we look back on it today, it seems more romantic because it's more descriptive, it's more um, erotic in many ways. Yeah. And that's the, the thing I, I really loved uncovering and, and feel kind of really sad about in comparison to today is there was this deep eroticism in the past. And I feel, and I know people disagree with me on this, but I really do feel in our kind of our broad sexual culture, we've lost that erotic joy and the embracing of eroticism that we find so much in the past you know there's there's such beautiful things that people used to say to one another that are really kind of heartwarming and and deeply romantic that we're simply talking about sex and and talking about their, their sexual desires their needs how a body feels how it smells how it tastes and I think for a lot of us today, if you think back to any of our recent sex scandals where you've seen prominent celebrities have their their kind of their sex printed in the newspaper, which on on the one hand is absolutely horrific as an invasion of privacy, mm. on the other, devastating by how bad people write their kind of their sexual desires today. It's yeah. really clunky. It's very kind of one in one out there's no romance there's no eroticism and I spend a lot of the time when we do have a sex scandal that where sex come out of, of taking one look at that and going Jesus Christ yeah. this is this is it this is how prom you know this is how a celebrity this is their this is their game they have no game like yeah. give me give me someone from the 15 or 1600s talking about their desire for taste and smell and likening parts of your body to the sea or the oysters that's yeah. what our sexual culture should yeah. be yeah yeah definitely you you sort of explore this in in um, quite a lot in chapters um the chapter sex where you look at this this sexual culture and and how it was more of a shared experience don't you mm. and then and then discuss how music lyrics um now which talk about sex being a more direct uh, sexual gratification for the recipient um so you know is is that kind of what you mean by moving away um you know it is and i suppose now with social media and things people used to write to each other didn't mm. they and yeah of course, now you've got photos, I suppose, as well. You don't need to describe no. something. You just send a photo. I think, um, I do think, I think we are moving from what has been an erotic culture to a pornographic one. Now, yeah. I, I have to say, I really think porn has a, has a really important place in our culture. It's always been there. It's always been part of us. 
and it can be really useful in the right context for people who are unsure and scared and want and are seeking information and there are some fantastic feminist-led ethical porn makers out there who should be cheered for what they're trying to do and change change people's connection to that industry and and Mm. give context and give ownership to the people who work in it and, and the audience that they're providing it for but I do feel that we are struggling today that we've lost that connection to sex being a shared pleasure and mm. something where both partners or however many people you want to have, how everyone's pleasure is as important as your own. I think today a lot of people are absolutely geared towards only what they get out of a sexual encounter rather than thinking about their partner's pleasure and that being something that dominates their sexual encounters. You know, if you look at any point before the, really the 1920s, from the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s and 1800s, every single sex guide, sex aid, any, any book, any text, any pamphlet that dealt with sex would tell you that female pleasure was the most important thing. And that's, 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 I mean, that did really surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, It's the thing that blows people's minds. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you do think that's a more modern thing, don't you? Um, Mm. And is that, um, sorry, I'm I'm skipping, skipping these questions, but is that because, because you do say we're left with a lot of um, leftovers really from the Victorian era. So is it the Victorian era that kind of almost, blocked that part of history for us and no, we took the, on a new, no not at all not at all the victorians absolutely believed that female pleasure was the most important part of sex oh, we see that good. in every single sex guide everything that was printed every pamphlet was printed in this period the problem comes as i as i sort of tried to set out in the book with the turn of the century with the 1900s with the move into um psychiatry and psychoanalysis and Ooh, the birth Freud. control yeah Uh, yeah 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 but it's also unfortunately the birth control movement and one of the things that I tried to set out is kind of how amazing the early women in the birth control movement were were for speaking that this is about female pleasure and it's so important and it gives women ownership over their sexual ideas but one of the reasons why in every century before the 20th female pleasure was so important was because it was absolutely fundamentally believed that this was the only way you got a woman pregnant And of course, sex was absolutely linked towards getting you pregnant and that idea. And that's how it could be talked about. And that's how it was discussed. And even though we know lots of people had sex only for pleasure, of course, to be able to talk about sex publicly was to talk about getting someone pregnant. So female pleasure was absolutely key. It was the the part. It's like the thing you were taught when you were a child as the most important thing of of your sexual interaction. Then when it we is, get birth yeah. control come out, yeah. birth control initially sort of as a thing that's about female ownership. But of course, if you're making clear that, that people aren't going to get pregnant, then the ideology and the identity and the connection to female pleasure falls away. And that's what happens in the 20th century. And it's really fucking sad. It, <laughs> it is. is. It really, really is. It is. I don't know how we kind of get get back, get back there at all. But um, can can I ask you um, in in chapters two and three, which which are brilliant, um, they're uh, women loving men and men loving men. 
Yeah, um, we learned so much, um, and we we think it's it's definitely an important part of the history. And again, you surprised us yeah. both with with that because you know um, what we know now, what we learn now, yeah. is so different. Um, mm. And in another podcast, Lou and I looked into a little bit about Dr. James Miranda Barry, um, mm. but we were so we were really surprised to read in your book that gender fluidity is not a modern concept um mm. and you introduce us to some amazing characters um <laughs> but w- were you surprised about anything that you found out or was there any character that you really preferred that you loved well I think those two chapters absolutely go hand in hand with the chapter that follows on from that which is loving who you want and this is yeah. my exploration of both get le- what we term today being gay, um, gay lesbian and trans identities and I think the those the reason why those chapters are so important to me is to show people that any any part of our LGBTQ plus history has been present in all of our history since the dawn of time. Like you can't separate it out. You can't claim that it's modern. But I think one of the problems that we have today, and we've we've certainly had in the last 50 years, as people have tried to make sure that LGBT, uh, LGBT history is seen as mainstream, is that we've grabbed hold of anyone who we can identify as being queer and made them only that. So they can only be lesbian or they can only be gay or they can only Mm. be trans. And we haven't allowed for that that person's life to be what it was in the past. So I, I think that we have to understand that the boundaries then were far more fluid because the language was more fluid. You didn't have gay, lesbian or trans people identified in different ways, even though obviously they lived in cultures and lived lives that we absolutely today recognise as being gay, lesbian or trans. And I, I think for me, the, the importance that I have for those chapters is making clear to people that these people have, these lives have always been part of our sexual culture and our sexual history, and they've always been lived in that way. And I think the, the, the factor of gender fluidity the idea that people will be born in one in one body and live their life as far as they're concerned in another is incredibly important to show in the past whether they're whether they're whether they're someone who identifies as as a child at birth and then as I'm sorry as male or female at birth and then and then in the opposite sex later in life it's really important to show that those lives have always been part of our history and then showing how people who have been um, either gay or lesbian have have found other people like them at a time when having a queer identity was absolutely, you know, was was seeing you burned at the stake. I mean, that mm. was that was one of the things that I found really surprising writing this book is I, you know, we know so we we spend so much time looking at gay history and very little talking about lesbian history. Mm. And for me finding out that lesbian couples were being executed by the state in Mm. Europe but not in the UK in the 15 and 1600s was intensely shocking because we Mm. aren't taught about that part of our queer history we are we are finally really coming to terms and addressing our gay history but we aren't addressing our lesbian history or we haven't given it the same platform that we've given other parts of our queer history and it's so, I feel it's uh, so important that we give every part of our queer history the same platform. Yeah, definitely. 
Definitely, and you, you certainly did in those chapters. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's some really uh, surprising um, stories and characters Character, in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you like them. I, I think oh. it's, yeah, it's, it's, I kind of, I like, I like challenging things. So we, we there's a bit on uh, Anne Lister, who obviously has been, has been uh, idolised by some amazing historians in the past, who's worked very much on, a coded, on her coded diary. She's the amazing lesbian um, gentlewoman in the early Victorian period that we have. And of course has been idolised by Sally Rooney, I think in her recent BBC drama series. So, mm-hmm. you know, we are seeing these stories being given prominence and being heard, but a lot of the time, we don't actually analyze them. So people hold Anne Lister up today as our lesbian kind of icon and how important it is that we know that history. And yes, of course it is. She's also someone who was severely anti-workers' rights, who poisoned the well for poor people on her land because she didn't want them taking her water. We need the nuance of the reality of the lives that these people have lived. I think that's really important too. It's all the truth, isn't it? Not not just the one that yeah, people want to hear. Definitely. Mm. Because I think sometimes in dramatizations, people you can watch it, but you can also sort of think, well, actually, how true is that? Did that actually was yeah. was that actually a person? Did that you know, yeah. and how how real was it? But you know, like you say, with reading with your book with all the little nuances in there and the and the, the explanations, it really comes comes to life, doesn't it? Yeah. And she because she was quite a womanizer in in if she was Absolutely. a man, she would have been a womanizer, wouldn't yeah. she? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she was a great shagger, massive shagger <laughs> loved loved sex loved the ladies loved loved whoever she could get her hands on and and I love that about her but I yeah. think that's one of the things that I I really care about when we're talking about queer history is making sure that we're giving people accurate history fair history and also a history that doesn't idolize people simply for the fact they were queer yeah that shows them as the real people that they were that shows them in in all their glory and all their flaws because that's that's something that I think we really need to do with any aspect of our history. In the same that I've I've done it with feminist history in the past in my other work, is is making sure we see people with their flaws as much as the things that we want to celebrate them. Because yeah. otherwise history becomes corrupted and misused and people are misrepresented and who they are is misrepresented. And I really hate that. I think I think we need to accept that the past is a human place too. Yeah, yeah, I think we've done that so much in history lessons in schools. Yeah. Um, mm. But now moving forward, you need, you need the whole truth, don't you? You need all yeah. of it. Very much so. Yeah, and, and I those... think. Sorry, carry on, Fern. No, no, I just I think people want to hear that. Yeah. I think you know we've we've really moved past the stage of of want of people not being curious or and you know I work a lot for um for TV and radio. And when I first started, there was certainly a belief amongst people who made TV and radio that audiences were not stupid, but not a fan of nuance. Yeah. Like it was much easier if things were black and white. It was much easier if it was sort of paint by numbers and things like that. And one of the things I think podcasts have really done is show that people absolutely bloody love nuance. They do. Yeah. Like yeah, that's the thing. That's yeah. the thing that really changes people's mind. And if you take something like, um, David Alashoga's House Through Time, which I've done, I've worked on a couple of seasons of, shows like that on the BBC that really unpick stories in a great detail that show the flaws of characters, that show things over a long period of time. Mm. There's a reason why those shows are so popular, and it's because they show nuance. 
it's mm. not a quick five minutes here a quick five minutes there and no information you know it's nothing like that and I, I think we are starting to see a shift now in the people who make our history content into understanding that people want as much information as they can get their hands on and that's that's how I've always written and that's how I, I always want to write is to not treat my audience as stupid yeah but to say here are the facts here's what happened make yeah. up your own minds yeah yeah no that's brilliant it works yeah <laughs> it works <laughs> where were we new so um so we've mentioned we mentioned the slang uh, some of the slang names um but i think it was in that same um chapter but uh, we didn't realize um that about the horrific sort of shaming and sanitizing about mm. um of our vulvas went back mm. that far we did a podcast a few weeks ago and a few couple of months ago with um sam talk sex she she owns um joe divine a, a sex mm. toys company and uh, we were had a good old chat didn't we about yeah, the right lubricants to use and how we can look after our vulvas nice. but yep. god we did if i'd have realized then we would have had a good old chat wouldn't we really, about what, <laughs> I mean, what, what was it they were using? They were using some sort of bleach, weren't they? Or this advertising? Is, yeah, it, it's really horrific. It's really horrific when you look at kind of how how commercialization has has shamed women about their most intimate parts, yeah. and how it's it's kind of got into our heads through advertising, through big business, through markets, and through through that that um, that there's something wrong with our genitalia that there's something gross or weird about it and I do I one of the things I do love doing in the book is kind of showing there's an amazing poem um and uh, where which is a very kind of old kind of farmer's wives tale uh, that's written in the book and it it says that you know there's a reason why the devil is scared um of women is because he's terrified of fannies and one of the <laughs> yeah. kind of the amazing illustrations of a woman picking up her um her hairy her, like so picking up her dress and showing off her hairy prospect as it's termed <laughs> with the devil running out the door now i love that that makes me absolutely howl but it is isn't it yeah imagine <laughs> imagine if yeah i mean you know why do scotsmen wear kilts women should be wearing them all along I and mean, yes. we can slash and scare all the men off and that would stop <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's, it's things like that but I I think for me that kind of represents a turning point I think it's in the 1700s where suddenly our genitalia becomes something that's a figure of fun that's something that's a bit gross that could that should use perfumes that yeah. you know that things like that because before that point especially if we look pre at prehistory Vulvas were absolutely celebrated. They're some of the earliest drawings on cave walls. In cave art mm. is the symbol of the vulva. And I and we know from the Venus figures, you know, these beautiful things like the Venus of Willendorf, that female genitalia was pronounced, it was prominent, it was idolized, it was celebrated, it was worshipped. Mm. And something happens in kind of the the, the 15, 16, 1700s. And it could be, you know, is it industrialization? Is it capitalism? You know, what some people marketing fear or or just is it female control? Who knows? But there does there is this shift into seeing women's intimate area as something that needs to be sanitized. And one of the most horrific parts of that for me again comes from kind of 
the turn of the century and the 20th centuries was which is when you get the Lysol adverts which mm. is literally saying to women to please your husband bleach your intimate oh, area and it's really shocking luckily mm. today we have better public health imaging that says that's not good but Lysol and things like death not um, you know bleach and other companies were still marketing themselves to women for that specific reason until very recently and that's incredibly horrific and shocking mm. to me yeah, yeah and I, I, I do think it's something that we we really need to address as a as a society and as a sexual culture this idea that female genitalia is something that needs to be altered when yeah. it's absolutely beautiful and perfect and fine just as it is yeah yeah it is and there's, there's a lot of people out there trying to do just that but sometimes mm. the uh the marketing and the money um kind of overtakes doesn't it and yeah. uh, things like uh vulva steamers vagina steamers and yeah. things like that that you see um tend to sort of take over they um, do and i think i think they're marketed by people that that are are just brought in brought up in the idea that yeah. the female body is something that needs to be cleansed and sanitized and defeminized in many ways you know there isn't a celebration today of the earthiness of our bodies yeah. you know there's we don't have the joy of sex for the 21st century of you know two hairy hippies having having a wonderful time mm-hmm. like we've lost that that attitude of sex is smelly your bodies are going to make weird noises someone might fart you know it's it's (laughs) funny it's intimate it's beautiful it can be the most incredible experience of your life with another human being all by yourself and it's your body it's not plastic it's not you know it's it's not something fake it's something real and human and, and, and I suppose it comes back to you were saying about, do you think it comes back to the, some of the porn that's made now because some of it is so, what, what, you know, perfect, yeah. and, you mm. know, these bodies that haven't got hair and they haven't, they haven't, you know, they all look, they're all perfectly made up. Not that I've watched very much, but, um, <laughs> but the modern porn, as you say, maybe is a bit too kind of clinical. Well, I think I think that depends on what you are watching. I think if you're mm. looking at the stuff that's made by men, often that comes out of <laughs> LA mm. and comes out of places like and some of the parts of Europe, then absolutely, yeah, it is this kind of plastic sort of dolly esque yeah. um, de identity. But if you look at something like an amazing company called Four Chambered Heart, who again are feminist ethical porn, who make sure that they are producing things that are all different types of bodies that are yeah. all different types of identity that are filmed in very intimate ways that feel very natural and human. And that's when you can see porn that's actually really trying to do a good job of, of showcasing sex as a beautiful, intimate and powerful experience. But I do think, I do think the kind of the Americanization of porn has had a really bad impact on our society today. But for me, it's things like Love Island and TOWIE mm. and those sort of shows that are absolutely geared towards seeing your worth only as, as kind of an inflated idea of the perfect body. Mm. That's absolutely nothing. You know, I, I find things like Love Island deeply unsexy. 
yeah. because yeah. it's not about a connection it's not about a, a connection or um a spark it's just about it's like it's like producers playing with barbies yeah and that's yeah. it it's utterly manufactured it's utterly manipulated yeah and it's being eaten up by kids who then think that that's how they're supposed to be and that's what sex should be and then they're going to places there where they can get free gifts and free porn clips and they can view them on their phone and there's no context and it's just this kind of self-perpetuating cycle mm. that is deeply unsexy and sexless yeah. yeah and that's the that's the information that they're being given and it's really frightening i think how how much our education systems are on the back foot and that doesn't mean that teachers aren't trying their level best and it doesn't mean that there aren't amazing sex educators out there desperately trying to combat this but we haven't allowed it to be mainstream like you're not allowed you're not still not supposed to talk to your kids about contextualizing porn for them well if you're not contextualizing porn for them who no one else is going to and I promise you every every child over the age of 13 has seen a porn clip on their phone yeah Yeah. like get on board with it start talking about it it's it's this isn't this isn't the job of of unfortunately this isn't a a moment where we can let our our schools and our sex educators take control because they aren't being given the help the rights the um the funding to be in our schools to be talking to our kids as much as we need them to so it really is on parents now and that's that's really shit because I think a lot of people still feel quite personally private about sex yeah yeah and yeah, I think don't a lot of feel are quite embarrassed yeah. to talk to their kids yeah, and yeah. there's no it's having the right tools I, I think to, to do that um you know and how to talk about it, especially you know now in today's society where you, mm. you've got the dick pics you've got everything else going on mm. it's a different society to the ones sort of Ginty and I grew up in because we're both in our 50s because we didn't have social media which was amazing mm. um to be fair so I think there's there's so much more on on young today mm. um but but not with the right information yeah, yeah. i think i think i think there is there are there are kind of amazing charities and sex educators out there you can if you google sex education uk you'll find an amazing list of people who are providing things for kids and trying to make um fantastic uh things available for parents to start these conversations but you really yeah. need to be having them. That's the thing that's yeah, that's you do. That's a, there's there's uh, some good books out there as well, aren't you? I, yeah. I know with, with but with all my three, I bought I bought them a book, and I you know I knew they were embarrassed, so I just kind of took it in their rooms. They go read that, ask me anything. <laughs> yeah, can, but it's you know, that it's that yeah. attitude. I think I think that's one of the reasons why I I kind of feel really lucky when I was growing up in that I grew up in a in a in a home where it was absolutely that attitude of. The, there is no embarrassment here this yeah. is not embarrassment. it's a beautiful thing it's very human you'll connect to people it'll be beautiful amazing here's information ask me anything never ever be ashamed yeah and yeah. that I, I wasn't until I went to university that I realized how lucky I was to yeah. have had that home life because I realized very quickly it was incredibly unique yeah and it made me really sad because because our pet you know I I say I think I say in kind of the the start of the book we get all of our our earliest messages about sexual culture at home first 
then our friends, then our, you know, then older people, then when we're out in the world. But if you're, if you're giving your kid the idea that sex is embarrassing from day one, you're always going to be on the back foot because mm. then they're going to feel that that's how, that's what they're supposed to think that coming to you is embarrassing. Whereas if from day one you're treating sex, which is what I, I want people to do and I wish people to do, and I think it's the only way we'll kind of manage to combat pornography. If you're treating sex as something that is absolutely human, absolutely normal, nothing embarrassing, nothing to be laughed about, that consent is, you know, that's how you start the discussions about consent. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you, you need to start. be more like the uh, fuckers. Yeah. yeah, you, do, you know Focus. what you really do. I'm yeah. not Trevor Streisand in that. She's, yeah. a, she's this is sort of thing. I was like, yes, this is how oh, she should be. She is amazing. I'm going to do that at tea time tonight and see my teenagers run away. Yeah, hat on the door tonight. <laughs> but I think it. I think it makes a difference. I really do. I think yeah. if it makes it because I mean that's how all those kids got there. Like yeah. let's let's be let's be clear. If you've got kids in your house, that's yeah. they're because someone somewhere had sex at some point, whether they're adopted or whether they're you know or whether you gave birth to them, yeah, they yeah. came from this beautiful, amazing act that you that someone normally had because they were deeply in love with another human being, and whether or not they were choosing in that moment to create a new life, the act that they were doing was about love and connection and power and beauty, and that's what we've lost from the yeah. sexual culture of the past that's what they knew and we seem to have forgotten we haven't well while we're, while we're talking about um children um fern you've put, we we agree that we we have to claim sex back but while we're talking about schools and things do you mind mm. if we ask what you think about the recent ofsted report about mm. sexual abuse and, and rape rape culture at, mm. at school um, it's horrific mm. Mm. And I think I think I don't know how how you both feel. Um, I'm in, I'm 35, so I'm in my mid 30s. And when I look back on my school experience, um, the boys pinged your bra strap. Mm -hmm. uh, you knew which boy in your class to slap around the face. You know which one was <laughs> going to try and grope your boobs. You yeah. knew who was going to try and lift your skirt up. You these things happened to you. They happened to your friends you knew who was going to uh, and I think by the time you were sort of 14 15 well definitely sort of I think 16 17 in my case people had started you know having experiences yeah. you certainly viewed any of the girls who at that age had those experiences as a slut because that's what we were taught yeah. And then by the time you were 18 everyone was pretty much having those experiences it was a very kind of awkward embarrassing painful yeah. time for everyone while those things are happening yeah, but a, a lot of us sorry. sorry yeah yeah we, we did a podcast with our daughters who were mm. 23 24 and 25 between them and it was their experiences at school and it was very so similar to what you, yeah. you're saying and yeah. to what Ginty and I went through and it's, it's not changed and that, no. that's the really sad thing well, I think, and I think it. I think, in a way, it has changed in that we all took that on the chin. We we were taught. I don't. Or I don't know how you feel, but I know I certainly felt that this was the message that I got when I was growing up: that boys will be boys, oh, and completely. unless yeah. unless someone was doing something absolutely horrific, mm. you were a good girl if you understood banter, 
if you laughed along with the boys and if you learned very quickly how to reject a boy without shaming or embarrassing him. Yes, that sounds and, very familiar. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's I think that's the messages our mothers were taught. Yeah. That's the messages we were taught. What's amazed me, what on the one hand has horrified me, on the other hand has absolutely amazed me, is what we're seeing today is girls far younger than the age I was at, sort of 16, 17, when these things started happening. They're now happening at 12, 13, 12 yeah, to 13 yeah. to 14, are dealing with far more aggressive sexual encounters than we ever knew of amongst friends or experienced in ourselves. And at the same time, they are having none of it. Mm. And that, I, I think... And the power that we're seeing in our young people, if you think of those incredibly brave girls outing the sexual culture and the, the horrific harassment that they were experiencing in private schools, yeah, you know, that's the, to stand up against that at the age they are, that's something that I look back on my generation as at 35 and go, Jesus Christ, we would never have done that. No. Like we would never have had, we would never have had that bravery. We would never have had that confidence. And we would never have said, we would have said to each other, that was wrong. I Mm. didn't like it. That made me unhappy. I won't go to the pub with him again. Mm -hmm. But we would never have done what they're doing today of absolutely, you know, balls out going for shaming and, and holding boys and men accountable. And I think that's so powerful. I really think that's so powerful. And I know so many mums of boys are terrified because they feel boys are being shamed. Boys don't know how to deal with this. It's going to cause more problems. There's going to be more violence and all of this. But at the same time, I bloody love those girls. And I I do, yeah. I do. And and I've got two, I've got, yeah, they are. And I've got two boys and neither of them think that funnily enough. They are are so for all all the girls, um, you know, uh, coming out and telling their, giving their testimonies. And because they, well, my eldest son says, well, he says he doesn't want it with this whole um, attitude. it's as if the boys are animals and he Mm. said I don't want to be lumped in that pile with 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 animals he said you know so he's you know it is a scary time but I think Mm. for most boys they're on the girls sides yeah I I think so too but I think I think the people who are saying it's unfair are mums who've Mm. grown up in the same culture we have you're right where you don't call men out you don't call them accountable you don't make them accountable because either you're, you know it can cause things to get so much worse, you're scared of it getting much worse, but also we are taught to placate. And I yeah. think a lot of the, the kind of the resistance that's coming from people saying, oh, what about our boys? What about our boys? Are coming, are, is coming from women who have, who have just grown up in that culture and can't break themselves out of it. Because I think the one thing we can all agree at the end of the day is we don't want our girls, we don't want any girl or woman to be abused on the street, to be raped, to face mm-hmm. sexual harassment, to do any of those things. That isn't going to change unless men feel that accountability is a strong and powerful thing to hold on to and admit yeah. to. And we aren't, we aren't going to change that. We aren't going to see that shift in culture without holding men accountable. No, I think it was uh, your daughter, Daisy, wasn't it, Lou, that said when we chatted on the podcast that, 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 you know, one thing that hasn't happened is they've never been told they were wrong. Yeah. You know, you can go right up, you know, to the top with um, Harvey Weinstein and, you know, they yeah. were never told they were wrong. 
Yeah. Um, and so this is what these powerful girls are doing now. Yeah. You are wrong. We're not having it. Yeah, I think they are. And I think I think also, I think for my generation and, and older generations, the awe that comes with looking at these young girls of, of their accountability is also coming with a reassessment of what we've put up with. Um, when, um, when Sarah Everard was missing, uh, which was horrific, mm-hmm. before we knew what had yeah. happened, yeah. I, was, it's, I was doing a thread online sort of saying, you know, okay, a lot of people are sort of reacting and going, well, what was she doing at nine? You know, you see men, what was she doing at nine? Nine o'clock. Yeah, how dare she? How dare <laughs> she? Nine o'clock. Yeah. In her, you know, in normal clothes. How dare she? And I was like, right. Do you, do you know what it's like for women? Here's, here's a very simple thread of polls for the women in my, in my you know, in my um, followers to answer, to show you what it's like being a woman today. And it was from simple things like, have you ever walked, have you ever put your car keys through your fingers? Have you ever walked quickly to your car because you were scared? Have you ever changed train carriages because a man made you uncomfortable? Have you ever got off a bus because a man was making you uncomfortable? You know, all of these things. Yeah. And the, the thread still online, you can still see it. The answers went into the thousands yeah. of women saying for the first time, I've never fucking put it together before. Yeah. Like all of these little things that we go through on a daily basis that simply leave, goes from us leaving our house to going to work, to in the workplace, to yeah. coming home again. Yeah. It's exhausting when you think yeah. about what we've got to do. Yeah. Um, we're yeah. so used to dismissing the, the, the yeah. smallest things. Like I was talking to my partner about it. I was like, if a man, if a man can't call me on a bus, I wouldn't come home and tell you about it. No. Because, because it's, it's no. so normal. Like isn't and I don't mean like it's so normal. I mean like yeah. it's so fucking boring. Yeah. I'm so much part of what I'm used to having to deal with a woman. Yeah. The only yeah. reason I would tell you would be if he's followed me home. And yeah. has that happened to me before? Of course it fucking has. Yeah. But yeah. you know, I would I would only tell you if I was in fear of my life. That's yeah. how stupid it is. Yeah. It, it, so yeah, we <laughs> this this thing about holding accountability, we need to do it. It's yeah. it's the time is now. Yeah, definitely. We need to we, we need to start to, talking, don't we? Because Lou and I have only just started talking about that sort of thing and realising that actually, oh, God, that is a thing. Yeah. yeah. It's a thing that we do. And I got really yeah. upset by it because I just thought I never thought it was a thing. And, you know, I had to have a good chat to myself, really. Yeah. Yeah. About it. Or I'm bringing up two girls, you know, mm. strong girls as well, who, are, who aren't taking any shit about yeah. the whole situation, which is amazing. Mm. And yours, Millie, as well. Um, it's fright it's frightening i think in many ways and i think we you know when we look back over our lives about what's happened the thing especially with um with uh with what happened to sarah uh one of the questions i found hardest to ask when i put it online was have you ever not stepped in Mm, that awful moment that we all know because we can all think of it when we saw something happening to another woman, a man, a, you know, a man, a stranger, obviously making another woman uncomfortable, yeah. where we were, we, we didn't step in that time because we were too scared for ourselves. Yeah. And we need mm. to talk about that as well, because yeah. th- I know that's happened to me. I know, I know I've been that woman where other women have looked away because they've been too scared. Yeah. You know, we have to address all of it. We're, we're just glad it's not us. Yeah, yeah. Going, those you, times, you say that little prayer. Thank God it's not us. And then yeah. you're like, what, 
what you know what are you going to do and you run through a hundred scenarios and you yeah. still yeah. can't do anything yeah, yeah. And, and we're so we're so proud of ourselves and we value those moments when we have stepped in or when another woman has stepped in for yeah. us. And, yeah. you know, that person becomes either they're like a savior in that moment. Yeah. But I also completely understand all those moments where we're too scared to. And I think being open and honest about that also helps men understand just the scale of it. Because yeah. it's that, it's the, it's the scale, the, un, the, the fact, because I do find when you sit down and you talk to, to guys that you know well, who are in your life or in your family, and you list it and you set it out, the reality, it is a moment of kind of scales falling from their eyes of yeah. fuck. Yeah. And then they start to see it everywhere. Yeah. And then they start to step, you know, and it does, it is a tiny change. It starts really slowly, but we have, it has to start. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Sorry, this has become my rant about street harassment. No, no, no. no, 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 get round to our nitty gritties now so we know that there are so many things that we can learn from your book mm. but what would be your top three sex lessons from history that you'd like oh. to take away i know three's hard isn't it oh my god <laughs> oh my god top three sex lessons from history uh, yeah. um okay firstly um i i feel really strongly about trans rights and for me the fact that we have lost sight of feminists, that what we are fighting against here is men and not trans people is a yeah, really yeah. important issue. And to be able to show that trans people have been part of our culture and part of our lives, that they have been accepted, that they have been having surgeries for over 100 years, that they've been present since the medieval period, that was a really important and powerful part of the book for me as a feminist who, yeah. who wants to try to make that clear to people. Um, that so that's my first lesson that I find yeah, fantastic, really important. Fantastic. Secondly, the Victorians did not invent the vibrator. This drives me crazy. <laughs> they didn't invent the vibrator. It wasn't some magical doctor sitting there thinking, "Yeah, sure, let's masturbate a woman and pretend it isn't really happening," and then create a device. <laughs> the Victorians adored sex toys. The sex toys from the Victorian period are some of the most beautiful, ornate things you will ever see in your life, and they are absolutely geared towards female pleasure. So the Victorians knew exactly what the female orgasm was don't believe the lies about the vibrator um <laughs> and finally finally what would be my third one? Oh god um uh okay my my last one would be that uh the sexual slang of the 15 and 1600s is some of the most romantic and sexy things you will ever read in your life i agree yeah all about the eroticism of female genitalia about oysters and pearls and sea and salt and it's beautiful and amazing and you should learn all about it fantastic oh, absolutely <laughs> i would say we could talk to you for hours absolutely amazing it's been a really oh, really lovely a chat. Of a time. oh good thank you so much <laughs> good and then, you know next the next book please next please book, come yeah. back or come back i anytime. will i will no we might give you really, a shout really about fun. any anything going on with yeah, sexual rape. we might oh that yeah. would be amazing brilliant yeah, lovely oh. um and is there anything else Lou so people can find I want to just say where people people buy your 
practically yes. anywhere, can't they? So the, yes, they the can. book is called Sex Lessons from by Fern Riddell and you can buy it anywhere and you need to buy it to do our book collection and join in we're going to read it in about four to five weeks amazing brilliant and thank you very much uh, well no a little bit of advice on that if you don't want to pay if you don't want to fund Amazon and you want to um, support your indies Hive Books Online has the same prices as Amazon but they are all independent bookshops Oh, and it's brilliant. absolutely a brilliant place to go. Yeah, so high books. I'm writing that away. <laughs> Good. We're going to do that. We'll make sure we put that on. Brilliant. Thank you. Brilliant. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks so Amazing. much, guys. It's been really good fun. Brilliant. Good. Good. Bye. 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 Well, how good was fun Riddell Lee. what a lovely lovely yeah. woman yeah absolutely brilliant we could have chatted all afternoon couldn't we well, we did really didn't we yeah we did yeah <laughs> we were there we were there a while we were <laughs> so we are going to read together the introduction and the first two chapters up to page 63 um that'll be chapter three men loving men okay so we're going to read up to that um we've put a link to Hive Books, um, which Fern mentioned in the podcast. Uh, we put a link in the po- podcast show notes and also in our Instagram bio for you to go and uh, buy it. It's a keeper, actually. It's it worth buying keeper. and keeping. It's Definitely. really, really, really good. Oh, what a lovely, lovely episode. One yes. of series two. It's good to had. be back, isn't it, Lou? Yeah, hello. <laughs> So we hope your tea's not gone cold and that you'll join us next Sunday for The Collective. We would love you to subscribe, follow and review and vote for our podcast. Still, Votes are still open. So please head over to our Instagram page, Womankind Collective, to leave comments or DM us with your thoughts and you'll find all the links and chat from the podcast here on the podcast show notes. Brilliant. See you soon. Well done. Yeah, take care. Lovely to be back, everyone. Yeah. Bye. 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 Thank you.